Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. The word of God came to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, saying, At that time, declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says Yahweh, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, Yahweh appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again I will build you, and you shall be built. O virgin Israel, again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Yahweh our God. For thus says Yahweh, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water, in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud in the height of Zion, and shall be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares Yahweh, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined, like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are Yahweh my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. Yahweh bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. 
At this I awoke, and behold, my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares Yahweh. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. But this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No Yahweh. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, Yahweh of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city shall be rebuilt for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out further, straight to the hill Garib, and then shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to Yahweh. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown any more forever. Jeremiah is known as a weeping prophet, and for good reason. He's a priest of in Anathoth of Benjamin, according to Jeremiah 1.1. And he prophesied during the waning days of Judah's prosperity, during King Josiah's reign, about 626-609, and then through all the kings that followed to the devastation of Jerusalem and the temple and immediately afterwards, around 585, maybe a little bit after that. He would not only have to proclaim the doom about to come and thus be seen as unpatriotic and giving material comfort to the enemy by his fellow Israelites, but he also would live through the disaster and leave the land against his own will to die in Egypt. Now, the vast majority of Jeremiah's message is consumed with these warnings about imminent doom and destruction. Now, the first 28 chapters are all about Yahweh's indictment of the people for their oppression and idolatry, warnings about the doom to come at the hands of the Babylonians, the persecution and distress that Jeremiah himself suffered, the importance of submitting to Nebuchadnezzar if they wish to be delivered, and the resistance that Jeremiah encountered from false prophets and false leaders. In Jeremiah 34 through 45 will be narratives of the experiences Jeremiah went through, the destruction of Jerusalem and the events that happened immediately afterward that would lead to Jeremiah's exile in Egypt. And chapters 46 through 51 would be nation oracles against the nations. And the last chapter is a coda that recounts the events of Jerusalem's destruction, demonstrating all the things uh, that Jeremiah had prophesied had been fulfilled, just like can be seen in 2 Kings 25. In Jeremiah, the gloom is almost entire and thorough, except for this short section between Jeremiah 29 through 33. In chapter 29, there's this letter he writes to the exiles, preparing them for the long haul, and the fact that this letter wasn't received very well. 
Jeremiah 30-33 provides some hope for Israel and Judah in the end. And we see this displayed in chapter 31. Jeremiah began at that time in this section, which is going back to Jeremiah 30, which is an alternating message of doom and destruction in the present. But there's hope and compassion from Yahweh in the future, a planned restoration of Jacob, that God would be their God and they would be his people in the latter days. And thus God is the God of the families of Israel. And the idea that the remnant of Israel who had escaped the sword would find favor in the wilderness, um, those that God had made to rest. There's some evocations there of Isaiah 40 and verse 2 about you know the way in the prepared in the wilderness. And all of this is starting to hint at what's coming. That Yahweh appeared from old, declaring his love to his people, his covenant loyalty or loving kindness toward them, that the virgin Israel would be rebuilt, the vineyards of Samaria would thrive, and those on the hills of Ephraim would come down to Zion to serve their God. That's verses 3 through 6. Uh, here onward, Ephraim is most likely representative of the leadership of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the northern kingdom's capitals in Samaria, which is part of Ephraim, going back to the prophecies of all of the dominance of Ephraim uh, from even the days of Jacob. Now, this is an extraordinary hope, as we're going to discuss further, that all the northern kingdom of Israel had been devastated and exiled over a century earlier. Uh, so they were they were defeated in battle in 722, and the city was destroyed. Even if you give a, a, a few years, uh, they were exiled no later than the 680s. And here we are, um, no earlier than 622, and very likely by this point, uh, in that end of the 7th century, maybe even into the 6th century. So these events have taken a very long time. Uh, to take place. And from Assyrian evidence, most of the Israelite population had assimilated into the native population within two or three generations. So almost certainly by this time, uh, that assimilation would have taken place. And it leads to a very open question. How much would Jeremiah or other Judahites have known about the fate of those ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel uh, in terms of those that had been exiled? It's an open question. We, we do not know. In verses 7 through 14, uh, Jeremiah continues in the same theme, that everyone should sing praises for Jacob because God would bring back a large group from the north country, including the lame, the disabled, the disadvantaged. They would return in lamentation and mourning for what they had endured, that Yahweh was a father to Israel and Ephraim was his firstborn. Uh, which immediately opens up some questions uh, here, the last part about Ephraim as firstborn, because Ephraim is not even the firstborn of Joseph, let alone the firstborn of Jacob. Genesis 48:14. Firstborn doesn't necessarily always indicate just first actually born. It can also be of influence or prominence. And indeed, the whole story in Genesis 48 is how Ephraim would have the preeminence over Manasseh, his older brother, and would have the preeminence in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so even after all the idolatry, all the devastation, and when it seems that only Judah is left, Yahweh still considers Ephraim his firstborn in preeminence which is pretty extraordinary, pretty startling in, in, in many respects. That Yahweh would scatter Israel, but then would gather them back together like a shepherd, and they would sing and dance and prosper in Zion, in verses 8 through 14. And, and we notice there this very tender image that God's going to bring back this group. That would even include the ones who normally don't make the trip, the marginalized, the disabled, those in difficulty, that he's shepherding them. They're going to sing and dance. This is very positive, but also very tender imagery. Then in verse 15, we've got this what seemed to be startling verse, this voice in Ramah, 
Uh, lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted because they are no longer. Ramah is the city of Benjamin in J Joshua 18.25. Uh, Benjamin and Joseph are Rachel's children. And since the exile of Benjamin would seem to be the end of Rachel's line, uh, because Joseph, uh, Joseph's sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, have already been exiled. Matthew 2 and verse 18, Matthew comes and does a creative play on the verse. He quotes this in terms of the children of Bethlehem being killed. He's associating Rachel with Bethlehem because she died giving birth to Benjamin near Bethlehem in Genesis 35. Uh, 16 through 20. But in the context, this has happened. But Yahweh tells Rachel to stop weeping because they will come again from the land of the enemy. That there is hope at the latter end for her descendants in verses 16 and 17. And, and based on the historical situation, we'd be very tempted to associate this and limit this specifically to Benjamin. Uh, we know there's going to be uh, descendants of Benjamin. Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, is one of them. But throughout the context, it's Ephraim that's under discussion. Uh, in verse 18, we're getting back to Ephraim. We already talked about Ephraim. Jeremiah is continuing to extend this hope for Israel. That no, Rachel has not been bereft of her children. There will be a remnant. And, and Yahweh then speaks in verse 18 through 20. Two, uh, as if hearing Ephraim's internal logic, that he's going to say, hey, I've, I've suffered chastisement, even though I'm not used to it, and he would now turn to Yahweh, and that he would repent, and he would be ashamed and confounded, and he would bear the reproach of what he had done. And then Yahweh speaks from his heart, that Ephraim is his dear son, his darling child. Yes, he spoke against him, but he earnestly remembers him still, that his heart yearns for Ephraim, and he will have mercy on them, in verse 20. And thus, in verse 21, the highway should be prepared with guideposts laid out so virgin Israel can return to their cities. Now, Yahweh wishes to know how long that his faithless daughter is going to go here and there and, and uh, backslide because he's created a new thing. A woman encompasses a man in verse 22, which is a very strange and challenging verse. Uh, a lot of people try to say, hey, the Christ was born of a virgin, and thus he was encompassed by the virgin, but... Uh, uh, beyond that, it's hard to see how that makes sense. Um, the figure seems to involve a woman pursuing a man more than vice versa. And so maybe in context, virgin Israel is now pursuing Yahweh. And also, who is a backsliding daughter? It might be a hinge verse, because Yahweh is going to appeal to Judah, see restored Israel as a marvel. He's now going to talk a bit about Judah. Because beginning in verse 23, he expects the Judites to say again, Yahweh bless you, mountain of holiness and righteousness, that they would again glorify God on Zion. That they will dwell in their cities, they would have flocks all around, weary souls would be satiated, sorrowful ones would be replenished. And then in verse 26, we kind of get a disruption of the context here, that uh, Jeremiah seems to have been dreaming all of this. This is a vision or something given a dream. He woke up and uh, his suite had been sleep to him. And he sleep had been sweet to him. And, and then he continues on. That the day would come when Israel and Judah would be sowed with men and beasts. Yahweh who would watch over them to destroy them would now watch over them to build them up. In verses 27 and 28. Uh, we then get this proverb, the same one you get in Ezekiel 18 too. That the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. A proverb to try to suggest that the sons are dealing with all the problems from their father's sins. And he says that they'll no longer say it, because each will die for his own iniquity, and Israel will thus not be continually punished for the sins of their fathers. And then in verse 31, we've got this promise of a new covenant on, on, an, on a day coming. 
And he's a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant he had made with their fathers who broke the covenant, even though Yahweh had been a husband to them. The covenant he would make with them, that the law would be in their inward parts and it would be written on their hearts, and he would be their God and they would be his people. No one would have to teach his neighbor to know Yahweh, for everyone would know him from the least to the greatest, and Yahweh would forgive their iniquity. Now, the Hebrews author will directly associate this promise with the new covenant God would establish with all mankind in Jesus. In fact, quotes the passage at length in Hebrews 8, uh, 7 through 13. Uh, it's, it's worth noting in context here, the, the knowing of God, but also that forgiveness of sins. Since the association of being in exile is because our sins have yet to be forgiven. And that the end of exile, true end of exile is proclaimed when the sins have been forgiven and thus... Uh, God and his people can dwell together uh, yet again. Now in verses 35-37, in context, the whole chapter is brought together. Yahweh is the creator. He has ordained the sun, the moon, and stars to give light and stirs up the sea. He has established these things. And if these ordinances depart before him, so will the seed of Israel cease being a nation. If heaven and earth can be measured and searched off, Yahweh will cast off the seed of Israel. And all of that's rhetorical, that he's not going to be casting off Israel or Judah entirely. And at the very end of the chapter, we've got this hope extended for Jerusalem, that it will be built out in future days from Hananel's Tower to the Corner Gate, from Garb to Goa, and the area of the Valley of Kidron to the Horse Gate, and it'll all be sacred to Yahweh, and it won't be overthrown. Unfortunately, it would be overthrown again uh, in the Roman period, but... The expansion imagined here did take place during the Second Temple period, something that in Jeremiah's day would seem fantastic, but the city would eventually grow to this size uh, before the catastrophe because of their transgressions. Regardless, this is how Jeremiah encourages Judah in, 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 in this section. But the main core of the message is a message of hope and restoration for Ephraim, and by extension, the ten tribes constituting the kingdom of Israel. And it's really challenging, because Israel has been in exile for almost a century now. And as far as all the historical data that we have, most by then had assimilated into the Assyrian milieu, and had suffered the fate of, of the Assyrians. Uh, how do we know this? Well, in Assyrian tablets, we find what are called theophoric elements of uh, of God's name. Even in Jeremiah, you notice the I-A-H there at the end, Yirmiyahu, the Y-H-U there, Yahu, Yirmiyahu, that, that's the name of God, Yahweh. So a lot of Israelites have that in their names. Uh, it indicates that Yahweh is the God they serve. Uh, and so in the Assyrian tablets, we see Israelites with names like that for the first generation, maybe in a few in the second generation, and then those names taper off in the records. We don't find them anymore. Uh, hey, it's entirely possible that Jeremiah knows things we do not. That there's been some who have returned. But yet, all of this is being framed as if it's in the future. That this is not a realized hope yet. That there is a future hope of restoration for Israel that has not yet taken place. We can envision two potential fulfillments. Perhaps some Israelites are in exile attempting to remain faithful to Yahweh and they will return to the land when the Judahites return after all the exiles, so in the Persian period or later. In Luke 2 and verse 36, we're told that the prophetess Anna is of the tribe of Asher. 
Um, that's one of those ten tribes. It's very likely that some remnant of each tribe persevered because maybe some fled to Judah in the days of Jeroboam when the, the, the kingdoms were divided. Maybe uh, some fled in the wake of the dissolution of Israel or at a later time. The other thing is that uh, the gospel did very well in the historic area of Assyria. And until the fall of Saddam Hussein, there were Assyrian Christian enclaves in northern Iraq. It, the redemption of Ephraim might well be seen in the gospel being received by many who would have had northern Israelite ancestry among the Assyrians at that time. Yet why does Jeremiah speak to this condition of Ephraim for, for all intents and purposes which has been lost? I mean, even if we can say there was some kind of fulfillment in terms of these things, it's all very, very small and minuscule. Um, that's not even really registering on the historical record, uh, and maybe something even with the gospel. But there's a reason he's speaking this to the Jews at this point, and that's because he says in verses 35 through 37, Yahweh does not abandon his covenant people, even if they abandon him. And this is that message of encouragement for Judah. Uh, we're focusing so many times that Jeremiah had to castigate them for their sin and warn them about their doom. And for good reason. That's what Jeremiah has to do. That's the primary focus of Jeremiah's meaning. But what happens after the devastation? What will Judah think then? What happens after the punishment has been experienced? Wouldn't some of them despair? Well, hey, we see what happened to the Israelites. They're gone. They're nowhere around. They've been lost. Behold and alas, we are now lost. There's no hope for us. We might as well go and assimilate into Babylon like the Israelites assimilated into Israel. But God still has a purpose for Ephraim and promises to restore Ephraim as he will restore Judah. Now, whether Ephraim, as a whole or not, proved willing to be restored is a different matter. But this is the point that, no, Judah, you can trust that God will restore you if you put your trust in him because he is faithful to his covenant and his covenant people, even though they are not. And this is a compelling message for us, that God does not abandon his covenant people, even if his covenant people abandon him. And, and we can think of the parable of the prodigal son. How uh, The prodigal son thoroughly abandoned his father and ran off in dissolute living. But when he turned and repented, his father welcomed him back. That the father had not given up on him, even though he had given up on his father. I want to be very clear about something. This does not mean some kind of once saved, always saved. Uh, those who refused and rebel to the point of death will be condemned. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, 2 Peter 2, 20-22. But it does mean that anyone who has fallen away can be restored and reconciled to God, that none are too far away. That even when God's people fail him, and they disappoint him. And even after he has been forced to judge them, he still fondly remembers them and would have them be saved. And that covenant loyalty of God is very powerful and very important. We should praise him for that and be thankful for that, although we shouldn't take it for granted and not presume upon his kindness. The fact that Matthew uses Jeremiah 31.15 for his episode about the destruction of the babies in, Jerusalem, in Bethlehem is very, very baffling. Because all those who are killed are Judites, as far as we can tell. Why would Rachel be weeping? And how is that a fulfillment of what is written? 
And the easy answer that a lot of people have gone to is that Matthew's proof texting. He's looking for anything that might have a hook and makes a connection no matter how tenuous. Oh, look, Rachel died near Bethlehem. People in Bethlehem lost their kids. Oh, look, it's a fulfillment. Rachel is weeping for her children. But that's the easy way out. Maybe we need to give Matthew the benefit of the doubt here and to see if maybe he's up to something a bit more profound. Now, in context, Jeremiah 31.15 is not a call for lamentation. In fact, quite the opposite. Yahweh is telling Rachel to stop weeping because there is hope that her children would return from their enemies. And perhaps Matthew has all of this in mind. Yes, Herod has killed children. The forces of evil are doing all they can to stop Jesus the Christ. But he's coming to bring redemption and restoration of the people of God to himself. The families are weeping for their dead children, and understandably so. But the Christ has come, and he will soon bring deliverance of the people of God from their enemy. And Rachel will have no more need to cry, because her people will find restoration and redemption in him. But of course, for our purposes, that prominent feature of Jeremiah 31 is that promise of that new covenant, verses 31 through 34. And the Hebrews author makes the application fully to Jesus and his work on the cross. That he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he quotes this passage in Hebrews 8, 7-13. And this well and truly indeed is its fulfillment. The no new covenant was ratified with Israel and Judah from the days of Jeremiah until the time of Jesus. And for Israel, it's a very important hope. Jeremiah is remembered as having predicted the doom and devastation which Judah would experience. And thus the Judites in exile could be sustained in hope that no God hadn't entirely given up on them yet. That yes, it was awful, yes, it was horrendous, yes, it was unimaginable, but the same guys who were telling us this would happen also told us that there was hope in the future. And that hope is why Israel continues to exist. That Judah did not give up entirely. That you had the formation of that exilic community that would sustain its faith and, and even in some respects grow and blossom in its faith on account of the exile. And that there would be this new covenant in which faithfulness would be um, facilitated better than what had been experienced in the old. There's a lot made about this promise about knowledge in the heart, as if that meant the gospel wouldn't require preaching. But really, 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, Paul kind of gives the answer. That our knowledge that we impart here comes from the Spirit, and can contrast the ministration of the Spirit with the administration under the law. That the new covenant between God and Israel featured the embodiment of the Torah, the instruction, and the temple in Jesus, and the hope of a resurrection in Him. And this extends to the hope and promise of the nations as well, that the presence of God would exist in the midst of and in all believers through his Spirit, which we see in Matthew 5, John 2, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, Ephesians 2 and 3, that Judah would experience judgment for their transgression. Their whole world would fall apart before them. But Jeremiah gives them hope. Yahweh does not abandon his covenant people. Even when they abandon him, he would restore both Israel and Judah and inaugurate a new covenant under better promises. And that's the hope that sustained Israel in dark times from Jeremiah's day until Jesus' day. Its fulfillment in Jesus is our hope and confidence. And that is why we all do well to prove faithful to God in Christ according to the new covenant and to obtain the resurrection of life in him. We're again so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you have... Uh, any questions or comments, if you'd like to discuss this further, if you have other questions, if you have a prayer request, or you just want to learn more about us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on uh, social media. 
Uh, if you appreciate this podcast, please uh, subscribe to our podcast. Um, we are on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, and of course, you can also find it through our website. And please share it with others on social media. And if I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website, deverbovitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.